You know, although, uh, although we are in a, a time in history, uh, I think we're in a culture as well, that, uh, uh, that it's often assumed that newer is better, right? But there's, there's certain things and, and certain books, I think especially, that, that have stood the test of time. Of course, the Bible is, is one of those, but there's other books as well. Uh, one of those being, uh, and one of those as it pertains to the church especially, uh, being a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, it's a book that was first published back in the 1560s and, and has been widely read uh, even up through today. Um, it's, a, it's a book that is a compilation of stories, mainly from uh, uh, England and Scotland during the 15th and 16th centuries, but, um, but uh, it was later expanded to include stories from throughout the history of the church. And, and what I have here this morning is, is actually just an abridged version. The, the actual book is over a thousand pages long, I believe, so this obviously is not that. But um, I, I wanted to read to you uh, just a brief story of someone who, who suffered because of their faith in Jesus. So this is the story of uh, John Rogers. It says, John Rogers was educated at the University of Cambridge, then served as chaplain to the English merchants living in Antwerp, the Netherlands. There he met William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale, both of whom had previously fled England. Converted to Protestantism, Rogers aided the two in translating the Bible into English, married, and he moved to Wittenberg, where he was given a congregation of his own. Rogers served his congregation for many years before returning to England during the reign of King Edward VI, who had banished Catholicism and made Protestantism the state religion. He served in St. Paul's until Queen Mary took the throne, banished the gospel, and brought Catholicism back to England. Even then, Rogers continued to preach against the Queen's proclamation until the council ordered him to remain under house arrest in his own home, which he did, even though he could have easily left the country. Protestantism was not going to flourish under Queen Mary. Rogers knew he could find work in Germany, and he did have a large family to think of, but he refused to abandon his cause to save his life. He remained a prisoner in his own house for a long time. But eventually, Bonner, Bishop of London, had Rogers imprisoned in Newgate with thieves and murderers, and Stephen Gardiner, Bishop of Winchester, condemned him to death. And so early on the morning February of Monday, February 4th, 1555, the jailer's wife woke Rogers and told him to hurry and dress. This was the day he was to burn. His wife and children met him on the way to Smithfield but Rogers still refused to recant. Arriving at Smithfield, he was given one more chance by Sheriff Woodruff. That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood, Rogers replied. Then said Woodruff, you are a heretic. Rogers said, that will be known on the day of judgment. Well, I'll never pray for you, to which Rogers replied, but I will pray for you. And a little before the burning, a pardon arrived, but Rogers refused to recant and accept it, becoming the first martyr to suffer death during the reign of Queen Mary. 
And if you know anything about the reign of Queen Mary, there were many, many more martyrs that came after him, and she was called Bloody Mary for a reason. Uh, I'll admit, when I, when I read stories such as that one, uh, I, I feel quite inadequate to speak on the topic of suffering. Uh, and I know I, I shouldn't compare the suffering in my life with that of other people, but there's just no question that, that uh, what I've lived through to this point in my life is vastly different than, than John Rogers, for example. Um, and so because of that, it, it, it's, it, it can be difficult for me to preach a text like the one today from Colossians, where Paul references some of the suffering that he faced. Um, but, but just because it's, uh, it's difficult for me and, and, and probably others of us to personally relate to what Paul is saying, it doesn't mean that we bypass the passage. And I think on the contrary, perhaps we have much we can learn from Paul as he shares with us his experience. And so with that being said, let's Let's go ahead and read through our text for today. We're in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 1 this morning and start into chapter 2. So I'm beginning here in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach in all riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, as I read through that, I, I think there are two main thrusts to that passage, and I've tried to capture both of them just in the title of uh, today's sermon. Uh, the first one is Paul's calling and role as a minister, and then the second one is the mystery of the gospel. So the title this morning, The Minister of the Mystery. So let's look at that, that first thrust, the first theme uh, off the bat, Paul being a minister. Uh, the Church of God is something that has many different uh, expressions and traditions um, throughout the entire world. Uh, for example, today is Easter Sunday in the Eastern Orthodox Church. 
right? Of course, we celebrated Easter, what, three or four weeks ago now, but today is Easter Sunday in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So you can see there that there's some difference in in Christian traditions. Um, another one within different denominations, different churches, is, uh, the, is what they call the person or people appointed by God to lead the church. So sometimes those people or that person is called pastor. Sometimes they're called reverends. Uh, in the Catholic Church, they're called priests. Sometimes they're called bishops or brothers or ministers. Uh, and and, and while, while some might say, well, they're just, they're just titles that are all interchangeable, uh, the, the different terms do convey different things. So, uh, so the term pastor, for example, that, 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 that comes from the concept of a shepherd who guards and, and leads and protects the flock. Uh, the term priest comes from the concept of the Old Testament priests who, who stood between God and the people and carried out the religious rituals. And the term minister, which we're going to be looking at this morning, which Paul uses uh, here in verse 25, that, that comes from the concept of a servant. A servant. In fact, the Greek word can most literally be used to describe someone who, like a waiter, who brings food and drink to you. A servant. And, and you know, to, to kind of help make this point, when I do my uh, sermon study, I'm typically going back and forth between six different um, Bible translations. And, uh, and of those six, the ESV, which, uh, which I just read from this morning, it's the only one that uses the English word minister. The other five translations all say servant. So you can see this theme coming out here, servant. So it seems what Paul is communicating is that he is a servant, and specifically in this setting. I, uh, I think the battery's going dead on that, probably. So uh, do what you want. I'll use this one. If you bring me batteries, that's fine. Um, so uh, Paul's talking about being a servant of both God and the people. Paul doesn't view himself as the head honcho, right, who, who, whom everyone serves. He, he, he doesn't view himself as the popular one trying to advance his career. He doesn't, doesn't view himself as the expert who has everything figured out. Instead, like the example given by Jesus, Paul views himself as, as the one who is called not to be served, but to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. And I think there's a great message right there, both for church leaders and for anyone uh, within a church body. Uh, those who minister ought not to be about personal gain, uh, comfort, notoriety, things like that. Uh, instead, they better just go with this one. Ought to be about service. And because each person within the church is, is called to serve, called to minister to others, we're, we're all called to follow that example of Jesus, to not be served, but to serve others. And for Paul, he described his service in this passage with words like suffering, um, afflictions, toil, uh, struggling, and, and I think there's a couple things that, uh, uh, that we can note there. One thing, 
well, look at verse 24 with me. He says that uh, um, he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, for the church. I think th there are a lot of questions that, uh, that that type of statement raises. What does Paul mean, uh, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? One thing we know that he doesn't mean, Paul does not mean that the work of Christ is, is in some way incomplete or that it is uh, inadequate in any way. Uh, the Bible is clear throughout its pages. Paul is clear throughout his letters that uh, the work of Jesus upon the cross is a finished work. It's finished. I mean, what was, what was Jesus' last words on the cross? Or one of his last words. It is finished. Jesus himself pointed to the finished work. And there's, there's other places, uh, verses like Hebrews 9.12 states, Jesus entered the holy place in heaven once and for all by means of his own blood to secure eternal redemption. Uh, Hebrews 10 states that Jesus' single offering, single offering perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. First uh, Peter 3 states Jesus suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So, so it's clear uh, in the Bible that there's, there's nothing lacking in the work of Jesus upon the cross or in the time since then. Instead, what, what has been suggested and, and what I would agree with is that Paul is, is referencing what is lacking in himself. What's lacking in himself. So uh, in his own life experience, where he had already suffered much for the sake of Christ, he was still lacking in terms of what Christ had experienced, or he's still lacking in terms of what he himself would experience as his life continued on. And, and again, Paul writes many places about, uh, about his own suffering. Second Corinthians 1, he states that he shares abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Philippians 3, he states that he shares in Christ's suffering. Romans 8, he talks about sharing in Christ's suffering. So, so as a minister, as a, as a servant of the church, Paul is filling up with suffering for the sake of the church. He, he seems to recognize that there is, there's great benefit to the church as the result of his suffering. And in a way, that, that's been seen, that's been recorded down through the history of the church. I mean, books like this, are, are one of those testimonies. Um, uh, the famous phrase often attributed to the early church father Tertullian captures this reality. The, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. That, that type of reality. Suffering increases our faith. It, it increases our trust in God. It, it deepens our personal relationship with God really in a way that, that nothing else quite does. And I would imagine if we're honest with ourselves, <clears throat> if we're honest with one another, we so love to hear that message, don't we? That suffering is good for us, that it leads to deepened faith and deepened trust. I, I've not come across many best-selling books that, that promote Christian suffering for the good of the church. Those books exist, but but they're definitely not bestsellers. They're flying off the shelves. Um, and, and this isn't to say that we ought to go looking for suffering. We're, we're not called to some sort of 
uh, religious masochism, where, where we, we try to find pleasure in the suffering itself. That, that, that's not what, what we're saying here. Instead, it has more to do with uh, how, you know, do we seek to avoid suffering, or, or what do we do when suffering does come upon us? Uh, do, we, do we withhold the proclamation of the gospel because it might offend the culture and lead to some suffering? Uh, do, we, do we look past serving the poor because of the sacrifice that it would require of us? Uh, do, we, do we keep quiet at work or at school about our faith because it might lead to the loss of a promotion or the loss of friends or, or, or something like that? And Paul clearly recognized that in a fallen world in, in which Satan is struggling against God, that there's going to be suffering as a Christ follower. He recognized that for himself. and He didn't shy away from it, but instead, as he says here, he's, he, he's, he's filled up with the suffering that came for the sake of the church. And, and I admit, my, my default expectation, probably due to the lack of suffering in my life, is that status quo will just continue up until I take my last breath. That's probably my default expectation. Um, I, I don't think I expect that I will truly have to suffer, you know, like John Rogers or Paul or others in my life. And, and, and I think that kind of expectation can, can be a detriment to me and, and can really lead to maybe missing some things. Like, you know, what, what type of ministry opportunities am I missing? Because I'm expecting the status quo to stay the same. And so I'm probably going to try to avoid suffering when those situations uh, come before me. Uh, you can ask that question as, uh, as a church body. What, what ministry opportunities might we collectively be missing because of an avoidance of suffering? But we, we cannot forget, cannot forget that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we know as he gave his life, there was incredible, incredible suffering that took place there. And kind of the second thing to note about the suffering that Paul talks about, um, we're not left to suffer alone. We're not left alone in that. And I'm not even talking about one another, fellow man or fellow woman suffering alongside of us or walking alongside of us. Those types of things are true. But what Paul states in verse 29 is that he is struggling with all his, God's, energy that he powerfully works within me. We're never left to persevere through suffering by way of our own strength. We're not. You know, when we think about that story I read John Rogers, uh, and other incredible stories of Christian martyrs down through the years, not a one of them took the stand that they did under their own strength. They didn't. It, it was God powerfully working within them. I, I, I think a good amount of suffering avoidance can, can be traced back to fear. Uh, fear of pain, fear of rejection, fear of unknown um, fear of uh, a loss of control. And I think we can address that fear by reminding ourselves that God's power is at work within us. And Paul references that here. Uh, he writes about it in Ephesians chapter 3. 
him who's able to do far abundantly, far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. He references it there. Ephesians 1, he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And maybe the most famous one, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, I've maybe said it before, that, that verse is taken out of context a lot, and it can really drive me nuts. But this is the context that that verse was written about. Paul was writing about suffering that he was facing. And so that strength of God in us and working through us is very much in relation to suffering, in the face of suffering. And, and I think all of that, all, all of that makes Paul's words to the church in Rome kind of echo around in my head. Romans chapter 80 says, what shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. Who can be against us? He goes on. He says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Now, Paul's not saying that persecution or danger or any of those things will never come. He, he's not saying that. He's not saying we're never going to have to worry about those things. Uh, read any of Paul's letters. Those things came. <laughs> they came in abundance in Paul's life. Paul knew very well those things would come, but because of his trust in the power of God, Paul knew that those things would not overcome him. They, they would not separate him from the love of God. So our calling as, as servants of God and of God's people means that we may face suffering as we carry that out. As we serve, we may suffer, but it's not something from which we should flee. Instead, we should rely upon God's power, rely upon God's love, knowing that, that absolutely nothing will separate us from him, knowing that nothing will gain the victory over us. We are given the victory in Christ. So Paul is a minister. He's a servant. Let's kind of shift gears here and talk about this mystery that Paul mentions three times. He's a minister tasked with making fully known a mystery. And again, kind, kind of going back to the, this, these Gnostic beliefs that we've been talking about, the, you know, Gnosticism that was creeping into the church, it, it viewed elements of knowledge as a mystery reserved for the privileged. The privileged few were the ones who received this knowledge and could understand this mystery. Paul's message is one that is not reserved for the privileged. I mean, look again at verse 28. Listen to the emphasis Paul's giving here. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Three times. Everyone, Paul's saying this, this mystery is being revealed to everyone. There's no in crowd and out crowd when it comes to the gospel. All are equally invited to come and experience redemption and forgiveness and new life. Now, now there's many, there are so many things about God's plan of salvation that, that either have been or are still a mystery to mankind. You know, how the Son of God could become a human is a mystery. We were wrestling with that in the adult Sunday school class this morning. That has been and that still remains a mystery. 
Um, you think about the end times, you know, the exact details regarding the end times and how that will unfold. That remains a mystery to us. But, but the mystery of which Paul is talking about here is, is neither of those two things <clears throat> that I just mentioned. Look with me again at verse 27. Paul says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what's this mystery? Which is Christ in you. And he's talking to Gentile believers when he says that. The mystery Paul is proclaiming is the incredible truth that God himself dwells within Gentiles. And honestly, it, it would be tough to overstate the magnitude of that detail. You know, we, we might immediately go to the, to the mystery of God dwelling within any person. And that is, that is a, a mystery, God living within his people. But the specific mystery Paul's talking about here, the mystery that was now known, was God living in Gentiles. And we don't live in ancient Israel, obviously, right? And so we might fail to grasp the pervasiveness of the, the tension, the, the separation that existed between Jew and Gentile. I mean, you see it come out in different places in Scripture. That, that gap was so wide that, for example, in Acts chapter 10, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter received a vision three times where God was revealing the Gentiles' inclusion in salvation. Three times God gave Peter this vision that Gentiles were able to come into faith in Christ. And immediately after those three visions, Paul was still inwardly perplexed about what that all meant. I mean, it was almost as if he couldn't comprehend that the Gentiles could possibly be included as equals with Jews in God's sight. But that's what God was revealing to Peter there. It's the same mystery that Paul is proclaiming, that Gentiles are indeed on equal footing with Jews, able to have God dwell within them. I mean, and, and Paul, he talks about this lots of other places too. Um, we, we already read um, from Ephesians uh, chapter 3 this morning, and I won't read that full passage again. But, but again, just listen to Paul talking about it there. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. He talks about that again, a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. I think this revealed mystery ought to hit us right between the eyes in two powerful ways. Two powerful ways. First, I, I don't know each person's family lineage here, but odds are every person in this room today is a Gentile, a non-Jew. I mean, there, there may be someone here that, that has Jewish blood. It's possible. But most likely, we are all Gentile people. We're non-Jews. Were it not for the mystery of God being revealed, you and I would have no hope of experiencing an intimate relationship with God. We wouldn't. We would not be included among God's people were it not for this mystery being revealed in the world. And, you know, I, I know in my head without a doubt that I am a Gentile, but when I read the Bible, I, 
I regularly fail to think of myself as an outsider who was brought in. I, I, you know, I don't think of myself as being far off, to use Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 2. I, I just don't think of myself that way. And, and maybe it's because I've lived probably all of my life as a relative insider. But I have to recognize the truth that apart from God's mercy in this respect, I, I would be on the outside looking in. Were it not for God's mystery being revealed, that, that he dwells within Gentiles, I would be on the outside, and there's nothing I could do in my own power to change that. There wouldn't be. Yet, I'm a fellow heir. I'm a fellow partaker of the promise solely because of the grace of God poured out upon me. I mean, we have to see that in this verse. As Paul talks to the Gentile believers in Colossae, we're part of that as well. Which kind of leads right into the second powerful truth about that mystery. Uh, because of the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles, because that's been revealed, because I myself am a benefactor of that mystery being revealed, I ought not withhold the gospel from anyone and, and treat anyone as being unworthy. Uh, and this moves firmly beyond a, a Jew-Gentile discussion. I mean, th this applies to any area where people are divided into groups along any kind of lines. If I ever assume that someone from the other group, again, however the lines are drawn, if I assume that they cannot experience salvation, then I'm forgetting and I'm outright rejecting the mystery of the gospel. Because that mystery was made known, that God dwells even within Gentiles. And you know, I... I I intellectually know that, that that's true. You know, like I would never, I would probably never verbally state that a person of any certain group isn't worthy of the gospel. And, and I'm, you know, I, I, would, I would know that that's true and I, I, would, I would believe that all are included, yet I, it doesn't mean that I don't sometimes act that way. It doesn't mean that there aren't times where I act like that's the case. Without realizing it, I may be, I may be uh, just treating someone like they're not included, like salvation isn't, isn't for them. And I think, I think the, the main way that happens is anytime we put stipulations on the gospel, anytime we do that, uh, you know, the Jewish believers did that with the Gentiles. You, you see that in the New Testament for sure. Uh, they required the Gentiles to basically become Jews as they became Christians. It's what they required of them. Kind of the first big controversy in the early church. So I would ask myself, are there, are there times where I think in my mind, well, they can become a Christian, but first they're going to have to change whatever, you know, fill in the blank. You know, do I say, well, they're probably not a true believer because of whatever, because they go to that church or, or whatever the case might be, or, or, man, they couldn't possibly be a Christian and vote for that candidate. I mean, there's lots of ways that we can do this. Might not be actively withholding the gospel, but, but the way we as Christians sometimes talk about certain people or treat certain people sends the message loud and clear that the gospel is only for certain ones. And, and 
typically it leads to those people wanting nothing to do with that gospel anyway, and who could blame them? But the mystery of the gospel is that it is for everyone, not just the Jews, Gentiles as well. So like Paul, we, we've, we've got to be people who are ministers of the mystery. Be people who are ministers of the mystery. Be people who serve God, even when we're filling up with suffering, like Paul was. Uh, we will be victorious in that struggle as we rely upon God's strength and God's power at work within us. And so we ought to serve even in the face of suffering. And we also ought to be people who rejoice in the revealed mystery and, and, and proclaim that revealed mystery to the world. And, and according to Paul's words in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, none are excluded from all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So let's not withhold that wonderful blessing from anyone. Shouldn't withhold it from, I mean, Jacob gave us a great example. I arrested this guy, <laughs> and yet he's worthy of the gospel. Right? We can't withhold it from anyone. The riches of the glory of this mystery is that Christ is in you, and he's in me as his followers, and he can be in anyone who will come to him. What a great mystery. That's a mystery worth proclaiming. It's a mystery worth singing about. It's a, it's a mystery worth living out in everything that we do. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's come to God and, and, and thank him. Father, as Gentiles standing here this morning... We praise you for the mystery that's revealed. We praise you that, that we are included in this, that we're not outsiders, that, that, that you can and do dwell within us as your people. What a blessing that is. God, we thank you for that. Give me and give all of us the, the eyes to see everyone as someone who is also included in that mystery. They've not done anything that excludes them from coming to you. So God, I pray that you'd give us opportunities as well to proclaim that wonderful mystery, to, to live out this calling as a minister, to be a servant, a servant who puts others ahead of themselves and who, who proclaims this, this wonderful truth. God, we, uh, we ought to be, and I think we are, humbled this morning that we can be called your people individually, that we can be called your, your daughter and your son. What a blessing that is. God, help us to never forget that. Help us to never forget the grace that you've poured into our lives. And help us to overflow that in all that we do in all of our interactions, conversations, every breath that we take. And God, it's in your great name that we pray this morning. Amen.